3: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another great episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, we have a really special guest, Jacob Shapiro, co-founder of Geopolitical Futures and former director of analysis of Geopolitical Futures. He recently left the company to go on and form some of his own ventures. But he has been my colleague for several years. We've written and discussed and had scotches and beers while talking about what's going on in the world and trying to make sense of it. And we're just super excited to have him on Reconsider, finally.
4: Yeah, I've been amped out of my mind. Let's get this started. Actually, do you guys know? I, I all I've been thinking about is that Offspring song, Tehran. If you guys, you know, if you guys don't know it, I'm not going to sing it uh, live for you right here. That would be a terrible idea <laughs> for everyone. But you know, and I wish, I wish. Actually, I think there's, we might be able to get a little clip of it in here. So I'll just mark that for posterity because I think fair use lets us play like ten seconds of it, and it's a great song. So we'll play that. That, that, that sounds like show, a maybe. plan. I didn't know that. That's awesome. I didn't know fair use—you could do that
1: with fair use. That's amazing.
4: I think you can when it's like in reference to something, or there's like a reason for it. You know, I'll I'll look it up, and I'm I'm sure. You know, if I get a cease and desist letter from the Offspring, uh, it'll be a great topic to talk about uh, in another <laughs> reconsider episode. Fair use, copyright law, all that good stuff. I'll be like, I got a letter today. You know, yeah, totally worth it.
3: So, for all of our dear listeners, welcome back to another really exciting episode of Reconsider. We're very very excited on this show to have jacob shapiro my former well my current colleague because we're always colleagues but he and i both worked at geopolitical futures for a long time he was the director of analysis there he's still writing really interesting geopolitical analysis and if people wanted to find your stuff right now where the best place be to go jacob
1: uh, you can find me on twitter at jacob shap uh, you can find me on linkedin you can also find me at jacob And you should probably know in the next couple of weeks, right now I'm just sort of sprinkling insights out into the social media universe, but I'm hoping in the next couple of weeks to have a more formal newsletter and regular cadence. So just keep an eye on me. I'll be coming for you soon.
4: And Jacob's work is X, Y, you know, you're biased, Xander. I actually just, you used to work with him. I actually just read it. Jacob's work is stellar. I personally rely on his analysis when I'm thinking about foreign policy as much as I can. And, you know, now he's off into the world and putting out a lot of stuff for free for the moment, at least. And, you know, so you guys will, you know, dear listeners, if you like geopolitics as nearly, you know, at least 20% as much as we do, you're going to love reading. Jacob, welcome to the show.
1: well, hold on, y- y'all are far too kind. It's a real honor and pleasure for <laughs> me to be on the show. We don't have to make this all about me. Y'all are great too. Please, <laughs> we
4: are kind of a big deal, Sander.
3: So big, <laughs> the biggest. Well, let's kick the show off with a reference to actually our last show, and I'm I'm also excited mm-hmm. to have Jacob on to talk about this because he knows a lot about UK politics. And Eric, what what exactly was sort of the genesis for the thread that we had on the reconsider website in response to our last show?
4: Yes. So I love our comment section and I'm the only media, you know, the only person in new media on earth who can say that, right? That we don't get like, we don't get utter crap in our comment section. We get really thoughtful responses and great questions and challenges. And that's one of the things that we value so much. And the thread that that kicked us off was, uh, you know, after we had talked about Brexit and 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 looking back, I had leaned pretty hard into – the election of uh, the re-election of, of the conservatives and their their majority was really about Brexit. That was what was important. The politicians said it was important. And so it was important. And I got hit right with a, please don't, you know, please Eric, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you from two of our listeners who you can read their comments. So I won't repeat them. Uh, but they said, hey, look, there was actually a lot more going on. Here are some links to different polls that show there's a lot more going on. Here's in particular links to show that Jeremy Corbyn had a very low, Popularity rating. So I had I had researched Boris Johnson's and said, hey, look, his popularity rating was pretty low. And, you know, so why would he get elected? But didn't look at Jeremy Corbyn's. Turns out it was even lower. And so there were all these details that, you know, I had just failed to do the research on. And our dear listeners kind of corrected me. So I've I've since done some of the research. I more or less disagree with the analysis that was in the comments to the point that it's not worth differentiating that. In addition to Brexit and the decisiveness that, you know, it's not that it's not that the decisiveness on Brexit wasn't an issue and wasn't a major issue, but there were other things at play. And it's, of course, actually impossible to tell how they all match together in people's minds and exactly how they're prioritized in the final choice. But, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's unpopularity turns out there are kind of accusations that he's said a bunch of anti-Semitic stuff or he may have said a bunch of anti-Semitic stuff and there are accusations that he is anti-Semitic and he's quite far left. And that didn't, you know, not everyone loved that. And he's actually, a Euroskeptic himself. But um, so there's, there are all these issues going on in it that we missed. So this is a moment for us to just be humble and know that we met, you know, like we get stuff wrong too. We miss stuff. And I don't want to depend on our listeners to help us get it right, because that's not fair to you. But it is one of the great things about the listeners that we do have that you were also thoughtful and you were also so well-read. And it just, you know, it's just the kind of group that we have. So thank you all for your input and for the corrections.
3: Jacob, do you think that the landslide or at least the healthy margin victory by the Tories in the election last month is a sign that the UK is no longer divided?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that was a softball. Uh, no, the, of course, the United Kingdom is incredibly divided. It's arguably more divided now than it was then. Uh, I will say that whatever people think about Boris Johnson, he's a very controversial political figure. And I think in the same way that people in polls were afraid to say that they liked President Trump, I think people were afraid to say that they liked Prime Minister Johnson. But secretly, there was something about his bluster and something about his confidence that really resonated in England especially in England. And I think that's the key caveat. I think that you have at least some kind of critical mass that has organized around the Conservative Party and around Boris Johnson's vision of what the Conservative Party should be. But now the question becomes the United Kingdom. Is it a United Kingdom? Are these states that make up the UK going to stick together? And that's, we're talking about Northern Ireland. We're talking about Scotland. We're talking about Wales. The Scottish are enraged. They are not happy about any of this. I'm pretty pessimistic about how they're going to be going forward. Just earlier, I think, was it yesterday, or maybe it was earlier today, Northern Ireland's government is actually going back to work for the first time in three years, which is a really important, critical step
4: forward. Oh, yeah, it's back.
1: It's back, but, and it's it's super important, and it's a really positive step forward, but I don't think it's going to be enough, and I really just think it's a matter of time before Northern Ireland becomes a part of the Republic of Ireland. And then Wales, I mean... Wales, I think, is still part of the the general UK consensus, but you're even getting little tiny reports of Welsh nationalist parties sprouting up all over the place, which is incredible. What amazing times we live in right now. So, now I think on national lines, UK is incredibly divided, even if uh, you have a House of Commons that is not going to be paralyzed by Brexit
3: anymore. I guess the thing that I can't quite tell is whenever there's a new development in the Brexit story, there's a lot of sort of wonkish analysis done. And it's such a complicated topic because there's just so much of the details matter. So there'll be like eight new flow charts that the BBC publishes. And so I, I still don't really have a good sense of what this means for the process. Like presumably we're closer. I think maybe you were telling me at one point or someone was that yeah, Johnson won, but he actually is, has made a lot of the capitulations to the EU already that he claimed he was never going to in order to get the deal done. But there are still so many extensions left, at different parts of the Article 50 process that could be implemented. What, where are we right now with all of this?
1: Yeah, we're just getting started. So basically, they've agreed now that they basically agreed to negotiate. They've basically defined the parameters of what the negotiation is going to look like and what happens if the negotiation fails. Now they're going to sit down and actually hammer out some of these really hard, tricky issues that are so tricky that they wanted to have these backstops and all these other things in place. The thing I think you can say about Johnson that was different than Theresa May, the the bill that uh, Johnson eventually got through the House of Commons, the Brexit bill, was not that much different than Theresa May's. I think the one thing Johnson has going for him is that the EU does kind of think of him as a loose cannon. They do now see that he has a majority government behind him, so he can really, he can say something and he can then deliver on it. And he just had a better nose for politics. I mean, you, you mentioned Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, Boris Johnson knew better than anybody that all he needed to do was to get into an election with Jeremy Corbyn and he would win. He was right. He He politically knew what he needed to do in order to get where he needed to go. So he's going to try and do that now the EU with all of its bureaucratic might is going to try and slow him down. You've probably heard that Johnson is trying to get the particulars of a, of a real of of Britain's exit done by the end of the year. That'd be a major victory for him. I don't even think Barnier and the EU guys are going to sit down to start talking until February, March at the earliest. So we'll see, but it's really, they've agreed to talk now. They had to talk about talking and now they're agreeing to actually talk is where we are.
4: Progress. Yeah, maybe it's, it, you know, Xander mentioned something, and we should keep this short so we can actually talk about Iran. But, you know, Xander mentioned last time that a big part of having the bigger majority, you know, by hook and by crook, he got the bigger majority. And sorry, that uh, that was maybe a little judgmental. But like whatever you need to do to get it, now you can actually play from a strong position because the ultra hardliner Brexits, you can Brexiteers, you can just ignore them and say, no, 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 we're doing it my way. If you're not on board, too bad. Whereas in the past May was much more hamstrung, so it seemed like Johnson was much more of a hardliner. But it actually opened his hand to be able to, you know, negotiate and take a take a more middling position because he didn't have to try to appease everyone in the conservatives. And you know, so maybe there's a little bit of like Nixon esque madman theory about. Yeah,
1: I think that's a big part of it. I, this is this is an imperfect metaphor, but. May was basically like Obama when he first started as President in the United States. She was trying to build consensus. She was trying to bring everybody in. She was trying to make it so that everybody got what they wanted. pragmatist moderation, all these good things. It turns out that when you're in a when you're in a negotiation with the e u that's not what works and Boris Johnson, for all of his many faults and for all his all of his many strengths, one of the things that he does have is he has a rational confidence. And he's gonna find your weak point and he's gonna keep mashing his finger on it until he gets what he wants or until he loses. And May I actually view this as a political virtue, which maybe shows you a little bit about what I think or what I value in a politician. But for that particular thing, it was just the wrong it was the wrong project for May. She was it was it was not a good fit with her skill set.
4: So I'm gonna just Put us on the railroad. Choo choo. Okay, now we're over in. We've moved from London to Tehran, and I guess you can't do that on a train, but whatever. So we're gonna we're gonna talk. You know, a lot of people are like you know what's going on. Uh, uh, Reconsidered. Talk to us. So we're talking to you about it. And we're we're recording from, you know, this is one of those things where, like, let's let's say what day we're recording on. It's the 10th of January, 5 p.m. Eastern time. So that's where we are in the news cycle. And you know, we try not to chase the news. So there's gonna be some details we you know, that that we don't try to be all that up to date on because we're not a 24-hour news cycle analysis show. But it is the case that we're not in the position where right after the airstrike, You know, Reddit decided it was going to be World War III again. And, you know, the stock market has recovered a little bit, oil has recovered a little bit. And, you know, does that mean that the perception in the world is that, you know, it's less likely it's going to be a shooting war at this point? Probably. And so that's kind of the perspective, the the current historic, you know, momentary historical perspective that I'm speaking from. But, You know, let's start from the ground up because people may be listening to this in months where they've forgotten what they were outraged about. They're outraged about something else now. So from the ground up, Jacob, our dear analyst, I'll I'll kick it off that we, you know, launch. Donald Trump ordered an airstrike to assassinate General Soleimani, who I believe is the head of the, the Quds Force. Maybe, Jacob, you can you can contextualize a little bit more of who Soleimani was, why he was important, why the U.S. cares about him.
1: Yeah, this is difficult. We'll we'll have to try and bite it off in chunks that don't make your audience go to sleep, because the first thing I want to do is talk about 1953 and the U.S.-British role in basically overthrowing a democratically elected Iranian leader, which is kind of where all this begins. And it's also kind of ironic that in 1953, you basically have both North Korea and Iran cropping up as a major issue for the United States. And here we are in 2020 and dealing with basically the exact same issues, which doesn't, I mean, you mentioned progress earlier, that doesn't really feel like progress. But yeah, so think of Iran as a very strange combination of a republic and a totalitarian, theocratic state. And it's both of those things at the same time. The republic itself is represented by, right now, by President Hassan Rouhani. If you've been following the news, you probably know that uh, the president before Rouhani was uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. He was quite a colorful figure and has a great Twitter account, if you're looking for people to follow on Twitter right now. Uh, that's sort of the republic side. They're elected, the elections are imperfect, but those are elected officials and there's, you know, uh, there's con- all that other kind of stuff is there. Then there's the theocratic component. And that's, led at the top level by the supreme leader. Right now, it's Ali Khamenei, not to be confused with Ruhollah Khomeini, who was the first one and sort of the architect of the Iranian revolution in 1979. And the IRGC, uh, which is the Islamic Revo- uh, what's the Islamic Revolutionary Guard yeah. Corps? which apparently the United States got wrong when it made its announcement. It called it the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. Always good when you're blowing people up with drones. that You don't even know what they organization is. It's our
3: specialty. Up.
1: But yeah, it's really uh, the, the, I can't even call it the Trump special because the U.S. has been doing this across the region. I mean, for a long time now, if you look at Obama, the Obama administration's record in Yemen, also not particularly good, but let's not digress. The IRGC was basically designed by Khomeini as the defender's, of the Islamic or the Iranian revolution. That's what they were supposed to be there for. They were basically supposed to be representing Iran's interests abroad. And not all of this stuff sprung out out of nowhere. A lot of this was grafted on to what the Shah had going on and then what Iran had going on before that. It's not like he decided that this was gonna be here. We're basically just moving some, we're, we're moving some chairs around on the deck and we're renaming some things. But the idea was the IRGC was going to protect Iran abroad And not only protect, but maybe help spread the Iranian revolution, which Iran really thought of this as a broader phenomenon. It wasn't just going to be something that happened in Iran. So the United States assassinated Soleimani because he was the leader of this organization. And this organization, unsurprisingly, was basically doing a lot of things that the United States did not like in the Middle East. And you can kind of go to they were trying to infiltrate Iraq because Iraq is their mortal enemy and they want to control Iraq. They're supporting the Houthis in Yemen. What's going on in Lebanon, where Hezbollah has gone from this kind of terrorist party on the fringes to basically the the major political party in Lebanon, that has all happened with the support of the IRGC and with Iran. Uh, When you look at Iranian terrorist activities abroad, that's all the IRGC. They even cross sectarian lines and they send some missiles to Hamas in the Gaza Strip so that they can bomb Israel. All these things go back to the IRGC. Now, the United States claims that it picked up some kind of intelligence, that there was going to be an imminent attack and that basically killing Soleimani was their way of defending from that attack. I have a really hard time believing that. What I think you can say is that the United States, this is part of its maximum pressure campaign. This is a guy that the United States has been saying for a while is a terrorist. And the Trump administration felt that legally, tactically, strategically, it was a good idea to take him out when they had an opportunity to. And that's
3: where we are today. Yeah, and just to try to tie, because Eric, you mentioned the Quds forces, and Jacob, you mentioned the IRGC, and the Quds forces is part of the IRGC. It is the part of the IRGC that is generally responsible for expeditionary or external action, so stuff going on outside of Iran. So they will be managing a lot of the fighting that, or they manage a lot of the fighting that happened in Syria. Even if a lot of that fighting was done by militias under Iranian control, some of that control might be managed with. Quds forces.
1: Yeah, and the and for those who don't speak Arabic, Quds is the Arabic word for Jerusalem, which already sort of gives you a sense of where their goal is. It's not, they're not protecting Tehran. They're looking outwards. They're trying to establish Iran's influence abroad.
3: So when this airstrike happened, I kind of had a holy shit moment because, you know, this Soleimani is not just another random Middle Eastern name that people have to become familiar with because... The news cycle picks it up, and it becomes like a political lobbying point for one side or another. This guy was a major figure. He made his bones in the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s, and he has—I don't know what you'd make of this, Jacob, but I'd call him certainly one of the most powerful people in Iran, maybe like up there with Khamenei, because he's the one who controls the regime's ability to basically stay in power, right? Right.
1: I don't know about that controls the regime's ability to in power, but I think you're absolutely right that he was one of the most powerful and well-thought-of people in Iran in general. I think that even as Iranians have been turning against their system of government, in part because of all of this economic pressure that they've been under, Soleimani was generally seen as an Iranian patriot, somebody who had devoted his life to protecting Iran and defending Iran. Um, I've been trying to think of who the right metaphor in the U.S. system would be, and it's 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 almost too imperfect to even venture a guess but in terms of prestige just prestige you know somebody like a james mattis somebody like a colin powell we're talking about a military figure who is basically liked and even when people disagree with him sort of respected as somebody who sticks up for iranian interests.
3: yeah and the reason i think it's important to make that point is because someone was making the similar point but they said soleimani is you know, it's like the U.S. went out and killed a vice president of another country. And I actually think that's a flawed metaphor because the vice president is not particularly powerful, all things considered. And Soleimani was an extremely powerful figure. The IRGC estimates of the size vary, but they have, you know, forces on land, sea, air, 125,000, 150,000 forces or something. So they're a, they're a subset of the Iranian military, but they're also the most elite of the Iranian military. And the fact that the u s actually got and killed this guy, like it's hard to interpret that for me as you know one of the narratives that's been kicking around is he was a terrorist and we killed another terrorist. It's like you know, to the extent that terrorists are generally associated with non state groups you know it's 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 hard to right. to make make out Soleimani as anyone but a state actor or, or you know part of a state entity. I don't know what do you think eric
4: well yeah, what in particular? I, I think the, hey, it's not that big a deal, or I, I there is a, wait, Obama totally used drones to kill terrorists all the time. What's the big deal? Camp. The difference is, you know, Iran is not a nation that we are in an active shooting war with, right? To the death, right? With the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, active shooting war to the death, already established. With ISIS, active shooting war to the death. Boko Haram, active shooting war to the death, already active, Already, you know, already committed to a war with that entire group, that entire military apparatus, already committed. And then you take out a leadership some of the leadership with the drone, that you like you haven't escalated anything because you're already at war. And I think the the difference with taking out someone who acts on behalf of a sovereign nation that you're not at war with is that it's an act of war, right? And the reason that the reason that it is Substantially different in it is just different in kind. This is not my opinion, it's just true. The reason it is different in kind from hitting Al Baghdadi or going and raiding Osama bin Laden is that we weren't at we're we're still not at war with Iran as of now, but we're not at war with Iran. We were at war with Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Now and and you know, the lack of congressional official declaration, be damned, we were obviously at war with them. And so these these folks are fair game in a way. And of course, there's a lot to complain about uh, Iran in terms of how they manage proxy fighters and us having to fight them and et cetera. But you took out the top general of a sovereign nation. It's an act of war against that nation. Are you sure you want to war with that nation? Because if you don't, you probably shouldn't do that.
1: Yeah, th- there's a lot to unpack in what you just said, Eric. I would say, first of all, that we're technically not at war with anyone, as you sort of alluded to. I know. So,
4: technically so, not. Yeah.
1: yeah. But the, the reason that the United States can bomb things like Al-Qaeda or like ISIS is because there is no state and there really are no hard and fast rules for having a war against a group that isn't internationally recognized as a state. For those in the Trump administration who are trying to say, look, this isn't a political assassination. This isn't an act of war. This is taking out a terrorist. The IRGC is engaged in enough nefarious activity and enough sort of terrorist proxy activity, you can make that argument. I personally wouldn't make that argument. And I think it was very, very clearly could have led to a war and needed to be treated that way. But I could see the argument that you would make there in that opposite direction. I think the the real problem here with how the U.S. is handling this, and it, it, it's the U.S. has basically been doing this since the Clinton administration, it is basing its decisions in the Middle East on faulty assumptions. And you can go through each of the previous administrations and figure out what those assumptions are. But if you want to understand what the assumption for the Trump administration is and why they're doing everything they're doing, they think all of the problems in the Middle East begin and end with Iran, period. That's the problem. That's the disease. And they want to cure it. You could make a lot of different pragmatic arguments about ends justifying means and all these other things, and there's the legality question, and I hate that the United States is doing things that might be read as war without going through Congress. That's a whole other thing. But I think the real operative thing here as an analyst, and as somebody who is just trying to analyze, analyze this objectively without projecting my own role in what my country is doing, is to say, I just think the United States doesn't quite get it yet again in the Middle East. This is not all about Iran. If you had regime change in Iran, it's not like the region would, sudden, would suddenly become peaceful and pragmatic and we'd be able to withdraw. It's not the same type of assumption as, say, the Obama administration or the Bush administration, um, where you know the Obama administration was just, we're going to be friendlier. We're going to be more pragmatic. We're going to get out. These ISIS guys, they're just a joke. They're a JV team, right? That was a wrong assumption. We ended up having to get back in. The Bush administration, we're going to build liberal democracy in Iraq, And liberal democracy is going to take root and spread around the region and everything's going to be great. Again, bad assumption. This administration's assumption is that Iran is the center of gravity. And while Iran does a lot of nefarious things, and while I would even venture that Soleimani has done a lot of horrible things, and I'm personally not sad that he's not with us anymore in the world, I just think on just an objective, intellectual, analytical basis, Iran is not the big problem. And if you take out Iran, if you do all this stuff and you end up getting what you think you want in terms of an overthrow of the Iranian regime, it's going to be worse. None of these things are actually going to get better by doing it.
3: Well, I think I might know your answer to this, but since you, you brought it up, let's go there. If Iran isn't the big 800-pound gorilla in the Middle East, what's, what's the big problem there?
1: Uh, so I, I always direct people back because I'm, I'm basically just riffing on Bernard Lewis. And Bernard Lewis got kind of weird. Towards the end of his life, he only passed away a year or two ago. But for most of his life, Bernard Lewis was probably the most insightful, uh, both historian and commentator on Islamic and especially Arab and Middle Eastern history in the world. And he wrote a piece in the Atlantic. I think it was in 1990. I think that was the year that it was. You can Google it. It's called "The Roots of Muslim Rage," and it is an incredible piece. And for anybody who aspires to be an analyst or a commentator or a forecaster, It's one of those rare documents or one of those rare forecasts that absolutely nailed it. It's what it looks like when you get it 100% right. And I'm paraphrasing him now, but basically what he says in that article, again, in 1990, when nobody's heard of Osama bin Laden, when nobody's heard of Al Qaeda, when we're still talking about secular Arab dictators and things like that, he basically says, look, the Islamic world is on the precipice of a civil war. They are going to have a long protracted fight about what the appropriate place should be Uh, for religion and their political structures, and there is very little the West can do about it. And what the West really needs to do is stay out of their way. We need to articulate sort of what we think the right relationship is between religion and state. We need to try and support people who have that conception of ours, but by and large, our interference isn't gonna do anything but mess anything up. This is a fight that Muslims have to fight for themselves, and we should stay out of it. So for me, you wanna know the main problem in the Middle East it's that you have that main, so that's sort of the main fight, this, this sort of clash between traditionalism and modernity, between the mosque and between politics. And then over on top of it, you have a litany of ethnic conflicts that haven't been dealt with for hundreds of years. So you've got Kurds running around, we have Arabs and Persians, and then all sorts of other small groups that nobody's ever heard of. And then we also have a sectarian struggle between Sunnis and Shiites. The Iranians are the Shiite faction, and then you've got different types of Sunnis, emerging in Turkey, Saudi Arabia with its strange Wahhabists, the Muslim Brotherhood, all over the place. All of these different conflicts are interlocking and sort of affecting each other. And that's why I say it's not just the Trump administration. It's every single U.S. administration is looking for that one problem that it's going to fix. And then the whole thing is going to be better. And there's just nothing that the U.S. can fix here. And because we've spent so much time and spent so much money and committed so much blood to this, it feels like it's some kind of defeat that we want to get out. But honestly, there's nothing we can do here. This is a fight that these people have to have for themselves. And we're really just in the way we're really just kind of moving things around. And the more we hit on one faction, three other factions pop up on the other side, and then we go and hit them. So that's my answer.
4: Wow, that was deeply insightful. Thank you. And yeah, I think so coming out of that, you know, the United States current you know, that there's the, there's the kind of like momentary, there's the momentary justification for it, which is probably something bad's gonna you know, like he's going to do something bad if we don't, which, which you don't believe. And, and, you know, one way or another, we haven't, you know, I, I certainly, and I think the public hasn't seen any credible evidence for, for whatever, you know, for either good reasons or not good reasons. Right. Mm-hmm. And then there seems to be, there's, you know, from the analysts side, what's the strategic reason for doing it? It's, Oh, we, you know, if we can neuter Iran, everything's going to be fine and and you're saying that's not likely. There's a bigger problem. It's not that you have this great situation. Iran is messing it all up the the I think the next thing for us to think about is what are the potential consequences of this in the short and the long term right and maybe we need to talk about a little bit more of what happened because Iran did respond with words and with missiles, and you know i i will I will get some of the details wrong but I believe 12 total missiles were fired into Iraq or maybe even from Iraq, but at two U.S. air bases, not killing any Americans. I remember seeing that the Iranian state TV had claimed that many Americans were killed, but that many, you know, kind of open source analysts uh, look at the satellite footage and say it very much looks like this was These were very precise missile strikes, definitely designed not to kill anyone. So this may be, you know, this is a kind of a face-saving operation where Iran chose not to escalate, but wanted to, you know, wanted to show that it was doing something. That's kind of all I've gotten out of it so far. Jacob?
1: No, you've you've got the important parts. And the part that you don't have is the part that I don't understand and nobody understands, which is in the process of of hitting these targets. Uh, And by the way, the hitting of these targets showed that Iran's ballistic missile capability has significantly increased, which is one of the reasons that the Trump administration wanted to pull out of the JCPOA. We can talk about why ballistic missiles weren't a part of the JCPOA if you want, but in the sense that Iran was basically allowing people to check their uranium enrichment and all these other things, and then they're testing ballistic missiles. That's one of the very real reasons. And strategic reasons that the Trump administration can say, well, look, I mean, sure, we had this deal, but they're breaking of the spirit of the deal left and right. But anyway, that aside, you've got all that right. The thing that also happened, though, is that this Ukrainian airliner was shot down by Iran or was accidentally shot down by Iran or had some kind of malfunction and crashed. I don't feel really good about explaining what exactly happened. Uh, but this civilian aircraft basically gets downed in all of this, and over 100 people, all of them civilians, all of them innocent, who have nothing to do with this conflict at all, die. And it is still not clear why, how, and whether that's going to have any effect in the long term. It seems like it's just going to be explained away and that nothing's really going to happen there, but I'd be lying to you if I said I was sure because I'm not even really sure what happened. But the ironic thing about all this is that I think we're at a de-escalatory moment. I was, you know, Xander talked about being afraid. I was really afraid in the moment, too. Uh, as somebody who grew up and remembers watching shock and awe and the sort of the period where we laid out the justification for the war in Iraq and then going in, I was getting weird, spidey senses about that time of my life as I was watching all of this go down and switching between different news channels. But I think for right this second, uh, cooler heads have prevailed. Iran and the United States, neither one of them have an interest in going to war with each other. So I think it was kind of the United States did its thing. Iran did its thing. Another one of the details is that uh, literally while Iran was firing its missiles, they were burying Soleimani. So literally going out with a bang. But now it's kind of it's closed off. And the only remaining question here is what the heck happened to this Ukrainian airliner. But the funny thing is, for all of this sturm and drong and angst and fear and all these other things, I think. I think this is where it stops, is is my best guess at this point.
4: I do remember, I believe it was the Ayatollah saying that the missile strikes were a slap in the face, but they were, quote, not enough. You probably read more into that. Do you think that was a kind of promise of more to come and that Iran could get anything out of doing more, perhaps deterrence of some sort, and that they have an interest in doing so? And I know you're saying that they probably won't, so you know that, but do they have an interest in doing more? from a deterrence perspective or from a domestic politics perspective, or is the risk just so high that, you know, that it's not worth it at all. Maybe it's worth weighing in on, Hey, if it did come to a, you know, quickly escalating shooting war, what might happen?
1: Uh, Eric, are you a basketball fan?
4: Uh, Enough of one.
1: So uh, I I love listening to Jalen Rose uh, as in his post career, talking about what's going on in the NBA. And he always talks about how guys in the NBA are really just big wusses. They don't actually like to fight to each other so or fight with each other. So you know, somebody fouls somebody really hard. And then the other guy, he's not going to go at him and punch him, right? He basically wants to yell at him and puff himself up. And his teammates are basically just like holding him back. And he's trying to do this hold me back thing, right? Oh. Where he's trying to yeah. fight him, but it's yes. like, hold me back, bro. Like, hold me back. I'm coming yeah. for you. Uh, I think that's what the Supreme Leader was doing. I think that's what the IRGC was doing. It was a bunch of hold me back, like, I'm going to get you. If somebody just, if they let go of my arms, I'm going to get you. And it's like, nobody's going to let go of your arms. Yeah, I think that was mostly tough talk. You also sort of, you know, yes, he said it was just a slap in the face. Yes, the U.S. deserves more. But even the IRGC was saying, if nothing else happens here, we're not going to do anything. We've kind of done our part for now. But if you test us, don't worry, we're coming at you again. I think if the United States did go at Iran again, They'd throw the kitchen sink. They wouldn't really have much of a choice at that point, And they'd lose, at least the war itself. They would right. probably lose the, the tactical war. In the long term, it would probably be good for them, especially for the legitimacy of the government. But this is a fight they generally can't win. So they would rather go back to the proxy war. They know that time is on their side they know that the united states electorate does not have anywhere close to the level of political will to sustain any kind of engagement in this region or the level of engagement that would be necessary to really achieve long-term strategic victory. So yeah, the, the Iran will if you poke Iran, they will come back at you with everything they've got. But Iran would much rather be doing this shadowy Soleimani war and they feel like they've been able to respond in their own way and they would rather now go back to the shadows.
4: Right. And I guess one more question I have on that is you, you know, you mentioned it would shore up the regime to be in a war with the United States. And one thought I had about, you know, kind of the strategic consequences of the strike is that, you know, there were lots of people, you know, of course, the regime claims millions, you know, this is one of those probably, you know, most attendance to an inauguration in history kind of speeches. But yeah, I know, Uh, it's the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? And but, you know, a lot of people, you can see the camera, a lot of people showed up. A hundred people died from being trampled to death because there were so many people there at this funeral, you know, because we'd killed this, like, you know, kind of universally beloved figure. And, and you know, an earlier article, Xander was talking about, like, fuel riots or fuel, pro- you know, protests kind of across Iran and, you know, growing issues due to the previous sanctions that the U.S. had put on. Uh, you know, economic issues, unemployment, et cetera, possible risks of the regime. I, leading question a little bit, do you think that there's going to be, you know, do you think that this strike and this at least temporary uniting of Iranians puts the U.S., you know, or puts the Iranian regime in a stronger place in the medium term, not just like short term kind of patriotism, or is it more of a flash in the pan?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the ironic thing about the administration's policy. So you've already heard me say that I don't think that Iran is the ill that is afflicting the Middle East. You could make an argument the other way, though. And there are plenty of smart people in the Trump administration who say that Iran is the problem and who think that regime change is the problem. Okay, the ironic thing is that what they were doing was working. They were putting a tremendous amount of pressure on the Iranian political system. You could see it in the protests, you could see it in food prices, on just about any objective indicator. The maximum pressure campaign was doing the job that it was supposed to do. And if that is what you think is going to get you to where you want to be in the Middle East, then keep it up. By doing this, by taking out Soleimani, he was a beloved figure, although I don't want to oversell that. There were a lot of people who don't like the IRGC, who see the IRGC as representative of that kind of thuggish totalitarian element that is very much there in Iran. What Iranians, uh, you know, as much as Soleimani might have been beloved, uh, Iranians hate the idea of foreign intervention in their own domestic politics. And especially when it comes from the West and especially when it comes from the United States or Great Britain, because they've already had experience with that. And I alluded to that the sort of the 1953 thing where the CIA and British intelligence get involved, where there is a democratically elected leader of the Iranian people in a totally legit election and you know the us and the and the british are basically like oh my god he's going to go over to the soviets and it's the cold war and it's containment and all these other things and they overthrow him and they support the shah and you get this military dictatorship that also was its own flavor of terrible so yeah i think if, if what you wanted was to overthrow the iranian regime the trump administration was actually doing a good job it was actually executing it pretty well and by doing this by taking out soleimani the way they did they basically just took a bazooka to their to the lower half of their body and blew themselves off, because you have a tremendous amount of support now for the Iranian government, not just the Rouhani administration, but especially for the IRGC and all these other moments. And I think it's equally true of China, in the same way that if you the trade war, and if you want to put pressure on China, and you want China to behave differently in the context of its relationships with, say, Taiwan, or the United States, or Japan, North Korea, South Korea, all these things, By by pushing as hard as the United States has, it's actually it's actually buttressing support at home for China. So you get these weird moments where the Trump administration picks a strategic goal, and I might disagree with it, but you know they're they're in office and they're the ones with the intelligence. So let's say that they know better than I do, and they're going at it and they're executing, and things are going the way that they want to. And then all of a sudden, it's like now we're going to bomb Soleimani. Like doesn't make any sense. Why are you going to bomb Soleimani? If, if you want maximum pressure, if you want these guys out, just give them all the rope. Let, let them continue to starve the Iranian people and force them to wear head coverings and do all this thuggish behavior. Eventually, if, if you believe in these American values of exceptionalism and liberty, and it should win out. When you do this type of thing, when you violate your own laws, which is, uh, I, you know, we didn't declare war on these folks, right? When you go after people that you shouldn't be going after, when you give people a chance to rally around their national flag, you're just killing the efficacy of what you're trying to do in the first
3: place. Yeah, and there's a term for this, right? The rally around the flag effect. And it's, I mean, it's a general enough concept that that idea exists. And I can't help but ask you this question, Jacob, because... Eric and I are both partial to realism as a framework for international relations analysis. And we've talked about why on prior episodes, and we've talked about some of the shortcomings of that. But it's this idea of interest-based analysis and full disclosure, I think that's probably the, the best way to try to understand world affairs. It's not the only way and you can't do it to the exclusion of everything else, but it can help explain a lot of things. In this case, it really doesn't seem to make sense because protests... You know, they happen in Iran, but they have been happening over the last two years at a higher cadence than they have been over the last four decades. Like the widespread protests that we saw, I think it was last month. I wrote an article on the website about it, reconsidermedia.com. That was the first time that you saw two years in a row, really major nationwide protests across the socioeconomic strata of the country. That's a big deal, and it's something new. And all of this economic pressure that the US was putting on Iran was really only exacerbating a situation that they had been creating for themselves. And you've written about this recently, and I think it was a LinkedIn article that you wrote about how the IRGC is intertwined, the economy, and and sort of the genesis of that problem. But then you take this this assassination, and frankly, I find it hard to call it anything besides that, but that's a whole different discussion. And it does seem to sort of blow that whole strategy, as you said, bottom half of your body is gone. So if your interest is, you know, regime collapse or regime overthrow... How, how do you try to explain this decision? Can you explain it in, in, the ter- in terms of interests? Or is this just so at the bottom level right now that day-to-day decisions for you know uh, us lowly people outside of the administration who don't have all the secret intel, we're just kind of playing a guessing game right now?
1: Well, I think there were some in the, in the administration that thought that assassinating Soleimani was going to be the thing that overthrew Iran. Uh, Because Iran would basically show that the government would be shown to be weak and feckless and it wouldn't be able to mount a similar response. You sort of saw a very similar mistake made in Venezuela, where the United States really thought all it had to do was support that Guaido guy. And, you know, Morales was going to come down and the whole edifice was going to come down. Uh, Anybody who was giving that advice probably wasn't very familiar with what's going on in Iran. I would have predicted a massive swell a massive surge of support for the Iranian regime if you took out Soleimani, but that's my only guess there. I think the important thing about, and you bring up realism, realism is really, it's not so much, a well, you correct me if I'm wrong, but my interpretation of realism is that it's not so much a theory about how politics works, but it's a framework for how to pursue foreign policy. And insofar as most policy is really inconsistent, it's attractive to me. So the example I always use when I talk about this is when somebody asks me if I'm for the death penalty here in the United States. From a purely theoretical point of view, I'm for the death penalty. I think there are crimes that you commit that you deserve to die for. Functionally and pragmatically, I'm against the death penalty because we see that when it is applied in practice, it's horribly racist. It's horribly unjust. You end up executing innocent people sometimes. It just doesn't work. And If you're going to execute even one innocent person, if you can't get that other component of a it, perfect it doesn't make sense pragmatically to support it. I sort of view realism as that kind of admission, that even if you want a moral foreign policy, even if you want a foreign policy that is informed by life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, all the things that we hope that our country stands for, in practice, it's going to be very, very hard to know what that is. So why not just define very clearly interests and then go engage your foreign policy based on whether something is there with your interests? And that has two advantages. Number one, you're never asking uh, those really complicated questions about whether something is good or bad. You're basically just saying, what is good is in my interest. And then second, that allows you to be predictable. And that's not just for you and yourself and your electorate, but for other countries. So other countries will say, okay, like we're not going to even go to the level of good and bad. I know that this country operates in accordance with its interests. And if I can just figure out its interests and deal with it on those terms, Then I'm going to be able to have a functional relationship with it. And the United States, Obama had a little bit of it, although I I don't think he really went full on in it. We really haven't had a quote unquote realist president, I don't know, since uh, George H.W. Bush. He's probably the last one that comes to mind as somebody who really was just going to say, "Okay, here are U.S. interests. I'm going to define them. I'm going to to pursue them. I'm not going to get all moralizing and self-righteous about everything else. I think what's really going on with assassinating Soleimani is you have a tug of war in the Trump administration, where some of them think that Iran's the major problem. They want to take a realist approach to taking them out, which is the maximum pressure campaign. And then you've got others who still have that trigger-happy, neoconservative trigger finger, where they just want to go at it. They really want to fight. They want a war, and they want to get there, and this is the way that they think that you're going there. And President Trump to his credit, for the first couple years of administration, he has been able to keep the sort of neocon, more aggressive faction from influencing Iran, Iranian policy. And it's ironic that this particular assassination, and I think it's fine to call it an assassination. And anybody who wants to not call it an assassination, please come at me at Twitter. I'm happy to deal with you. Um, But it's ironic that as As John Bolton left, who was probably the biggest, he's sort of the platonic ideal of that neoconservative, trigger-happy, once-war person, uh, that the United States did distinct. So that's what I would say. The United States doesn't behave in a realist manner because it doesn't have a realist president and it doesn't have a system that is geared towards realism. I think that maximum pressure campaign that you were talking about, yeah, that was... Probably by a faction that sort of understood what the Trump administration wanted and was trying to bring that about. And whoever was advocating the assassination of Soleimani either got Iran horribly wrong or really wanted to pick a fight. Those are my two guesses.
4: I only want to nitpick. You had asked earlier, correct me if I'm wrong, about what realism is. And so I'm, I'm, ta- I'm leaping at the opportunity mostly because this is the, I spent a couple of years studying this back at grad school. And I think you you sort of said like, oh, re- realism is less less of a theory and more of a like more of an approach to how a country can run its foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And I would I'm bringing this up only only for the other pro- probably only for the other theorists out there that it that that certainly like back at the you know back at the institute we would say oh no it's definitely a theory it is a descriptive theory of this is how countries will manage their foreign policy as opposed to prescriptive should and that said the complex part of it is that if you believe that you know it's 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 one of those things that uh, what you can't observe an electron without influencing the electron right and so it's similarly similarly if you bring in a descriptive one descriptive theory of realism versus a descriptive theory of liberalism about how foreign policy works and what the impact uh, you know what causes war and what causes countries to be allies and not if you if you're a leader that believes in one of them versus the other you are actually likely to act differently uh, which makes you know the whole ability to create a theory in a vacuum a theory of of a system like this in a vacuum a mess but but that is a that is a somewhat academic nitpick perhaps i would call your approach like pragmatism in foreign policy but but all that aside all that aside, I think like besides the name, I think everything felt internally consistent to me. Yeah, I,
1: I think we have to call this the Heisenberg realist principle now. Um, yeah, exactly. And I just have to cop to uh, not having the mental faculties to separate the descriptive and, and prescriptive when it comes to realism. Because for me, I I can't maintain the distance between them. Uh, for me, very like right. in my own head, when I'm when I start thinking about it descriptively, I'm automatically going to the prescriptive thing and and vice versa. Exactly. It's kind of hard to, to delineate it at all. And I will say that you know, I'm coming from, from GPF where I worked with Xander. And I would say that one of the reasons I left GPF and one of the reasons I always felt a little constrained by GPF was because I think realism also tends to overemphasize the role of impersonal forces in politics. And they're there. I don't mean to say that they're not there at all. You might even say that 95% of all foreign policy and international relations is defined by things like geography and economics and all these larger and personal forces. But that 5% that is defined by what an individual leader loves or hates or what people fear from the nation that is living next door to them, oftentimes that 5% is really what, what makes things go. And one of the reasons that I have trouble with You want to call it realism or pragmatism or geopolitics or geopolitical theories. One of the reasons that I think that they are important but inadequate is because sometimes they lose sight of the fact that economics is just, you know, what a bunch of people do in aggregate. Politics is what a bunch of people hope or fear in aggregate. And if you want to understand politics, you have to be able to do that realist back and forth thing that we've been talking about. And also, you got to be able to sit your butt in President Trump's mind or in Soleiman's mind or any of these other guys or Soleimani's mind or any of these other guys and be like, OK, what's he thinking? What does he think? What does he feel? What does he believe? What did he have for breakfast? All of that matters. All of that swirls together. And all of that is what actually leads to, to a development that's going to happen. So I think part of that has to be the answer for what's going on with Soleimani. There's got to be some stuff that we're just not privy to about individual personalities and individual political fights within the Trump administration that made it so that this policy choice was taken. And it's one of those one of those examples here where a realism or a geopolitics or a determinism doesn't work because you don't have the actual thing in front of you. Because like Xander, you said, it doesn't make sense. If you're trying to take out your realism yardstick and measure this Soleimani assassination, I mean, either the person doing it is just horribly wrong where there's something else going on there that realism doesn't explain.
3: I I just want to throw it out there that for my birthday this year, I want a realism yardstick. I I don't know what it is, (laughs) but I want it. Uh, Something that I definitely wanted to make sure that we touched on in in this episode on, on Iran is something that has almost become, it really has become a recurring trope here at Reconsider, which is, this one thing happened that is sensational. So we're definitely 100% going to World War III, right? Yeah. It's just, I mean, China's going to back Iran and it's the end of the world, right? Because this one guy was killed. Um, what, why does this narrative get picked up so frequently when these admittedly pretty big events happen? I mean, I called it an oh shit moment. You were freaked out. I was freaked out because I thought this substantially increased the probability of war with Iran. But how does that transmogrify in the public imagination into World War Three?
1: I spend a lot of time thinking about this and I don't know if this is the right answer, but this is the answer I have for you right now. And I'm, this is particularly from a Western perspective. I don't know if this works for other perspectives, although maybe it does. I think World War Two is, the totem for all political conversations because it's really the only conflict in living memory where there was good and evil, and it's unarguable. You can say what was right, and you can say what was wrong, and it's comfortable in that sense because there is no ambiguity. You don't have to worry about it. World War II was about, we, you know, the West was on the side of goodness, and we were fighting these totalitarian regimes in Japan and Germany, all these other things, and we we are at our best. when We are fighting evil because it's unambiguously a bad thing. I think that's why people go to the World War III tropes because it's just a way of trying to understand stuff that really is more gray than it is black and white, and people just want a framework to try and understand what's going on. I think you're exact. I mean, I, I hear this in the tone of your voice. I'll just I think your tone is exactly right to say that we're not close to World War III. Um, this was never going to start World War III. The Soleimani thing. It wasn't even going to. At worst, it would have been a really worse version of the Iraq War. That's about as bad as it could have actually become. I will say, and I, I've compared what's going on in the world right now much more to, and I think you would sympathize with this, standard, much much more to what was happening in the world leading up to World War I rather than World War II, in the sense that we are living in a time of rising and falling great powers. There is this sort of interesting regionalization and strange alliances and pragmatic relationships sort of cropping up here and there that you wouldn't have necessarily expected, and everything sort of feels like it's. You know, on on a nice edge and just one thing could could send it in another direction. I think the problem here is that the United States is just too powerful for that right now. Now, I don't know if that's going to be true in 20 years or 30 years. I actually I just put out an article before we got on the podcast about um, Taiwan's elections tomorrow and sort of talked about how if you're thinking about World War Three, you're thinking about a China that's getting stronger for the next 20 to 30 years. You're thinking about a U.S. that sort of stays where it is right now. And then you're getting a conflict over taiwan that's a scenario that could develop into a type of world war global conflict because you got china becoming a a real peer power of the united states you have some alliance coalitions all these other things then you could see it but we're not anywhere close right now and people i think keep invoking world war iii just because most people know the story of world war ii and it's easy it allows them to sort of frame everything in the context of things that they can understand And this is perhaps why the United States has had such bad Middle East policy for so long, because it does not have uh, really sophisticated ways of understanding what's going on in the Middle East. And one of the bad things about um, the Trump administration is the sort of reflexive now distrust of expertise and of saying we don't need experts, we just need somebody who's going to get things done. And, and that's all that we need. And it's, it's ironic that Right now, we sort of need experts more than ever to tell us where the gray areas are and how we can find both areas of cooperation, but also those areas where we might disagree with another foreign power and how we might be able to work through them. Uh, But that's not sexy. It's why you know Marvel superhero movies do better than Little Women. Little Women is probably a better movie about what it means to live a modern life in the 20th century than Iron Man. But Iron Man's fun, blows things up, very easy to know who's good and who's
3: bad. I mean, to be fair, I would watch Captain Pragmatis with his realist yardstick, but not many people would.
4: <laughs> oh, I was, I was actually thinking of, like, little women all in mechanized armor, just, you know, solving their problems by kicking ass left and right, right? Yeah, so... Th- they weren't, yeah, they weren't little girls. They were little iron women. Boom!
1: Yeah, forget World War Three. It's going to be World War Women. And us men are just going to sit on the side and do nothing the whole time. Like we normally do.
3: WWW. There's some sort of internet joke in there that I can't find. What do you think, Eric? Because we've talked about this before. I Jacob, I think, I mean, it's a whole nother conversation. If we were to talk about the parallels with pre-World War one, and I think that is far more apt metaphor. That is very concerning to me. And when people ask me what I'm most concerned about, I say, China, Uh, the difference there is, are certain aspects of the geography and the number of players involved but that's another conversation. Eric, what's your take on the World War Three is inevitable with every development thing that's sensational? I mean, as
4: much as I hate to say it, I think it's about just Trump sensationalism, right? As much as, look, I don't want to, there are going to be people who want, you know, possibly some of them listening to the show who want it to be true that every bad thing said about Trump is sensationalism and fake, fake news, and there are going to be people who want every bad thing said about Trump to be true to the most extreme degree, and I do think that Trump is responsible, partially responsible for how sensational everything he does is. The guy, the guy markets himself extremely sensational,ly and you know it, it's like my whole thing about the wall, the border wall, right? The border wall is sensationalized because of Trump, and you know, where we'd already been building a border wall for decades. And now it's a big deal because Trump's like, it's a big deal, super big deal, the biggest. Right. And then everyone got fired up about it. So, and so I do think it is the case that, and, and I th- I do think this is only part of it. I, so I do think it's the case that sensationalizing stuff Trump does is just like par for the course. When he showed up, you know, the, the people who don't like Trump said he is incompetent. He's going to, you know, him being at the helm is frightening, Him having his finger on the nuclear trigger is terrifying. And therefore, anytime something is, you know, people just got so into that narrative that anytime something, you know, he does something provocative and something even like tiny level provocative, like, you know, hitting the hitting the runway of a Syrian airport with a missile strike after they had dropped chemical weapons like that was going to cause World War Three. We have a podcast episode about that right that causing world war 3. So there's a there's a bit of a, a cry wolf problem where everything Trump does is world war 3. No matter how how twisted you you have to get to to get there. The other side of it is that Trump Trump's decisions as the commander in chief do seem to draw criticism from from military professionals in the United States retired typically because the military in the United States is so good at not getting involved in politics, which is something God bless America. I I love about our military, but you know retired military professionals going like this this is crazy. This doesn't make any sense. And so some of it is that it it I think there is a narrative you can make that it's a little bit unhinged. But I do think it's about him. I really think that the the it's going to be World War III because Trump did something spectacular. Is about him. And when we get you know another. You know, like like George George Bush George W. Bush invaded Iraq, right? And like could have kicked off a massive regional war, right? And kind of did, right? It's just a it's just a, a slow burning one. And nobody said, oh, you know, you know, Iran's going to get involved, and China likes them, and Russia likes them, and so they'll be in a fight with us, and it'll be World War III, and NATO will get involved, blah, blah blah blah. Like nobody did that Iraq. when we literally invaded Iran. Sorry, Iraq. That's what I meant. So uh, I really do think it's about the the guy. The guy in the chair right now. Yeah, I,
1: I'm going to disagree with that. I mean, the the Bush administration had its war on terror, which was, you know, if Iraq had gone well, they probably would have moved on to Iran and to North Korea, and it was a function of that optimistic time where people thought it was the end of history and nation states didn't matter. Nation states do matter, and they're coming back, and I think that's one of the reasons people use those totems. But I was thinking about it, and not just from a Western perspective, but I can't talk about China today. But if you go and read Kissinger's book on uh, on China. He talks about how Chinese foreign policy, a lot of the uh, decision makers in sort of the first 20 to 30 years after World War II, after the communists eventually come to power and they win the Chinese Civil War, he talks about how they all expected World War III. They were waiting for it. And a lot of what Mao was doing was trying to make sure that China was ready for the conflict when it came, and it never actually came. So it's it's interesting to me to think about in different contexts where kind of World War III frenzy gets going and how people think about it. The second thought I would have is just that, you know, I wonder if, if after the 30 years war for the first hundred years afterwards, people like us were sitting around the fire worrying about, oh my God, is this the next 30 years war? Like, is this the next defenestration of Prague? Like what's happening here? This might be, are we going to go back to this barbarism? I have no idea. I've I've never actually looked at sort of the historiography of that, but I, I wonder if there are other conflicts at different points in, in human existence that, that had that kind of same force not globally then at least regionally and then the third thing is that i'm I'm just going to make a little bit of a joke here uh to talk about you know uh the point you'll see what it's about so it's basically uh imagine you're in like 18th century poland and it's a christian village but there's a jewish minority and the the christian village is looking for somebody to go out every day to blow his bugle uh every day until Jesus comes back until the Messiah returns to, to save humankind. So they get a bunch of people who are applying for this job and they're all terrible and none of them can play the bugle and it's just awful. And then one day this Jew comes in and he's just the most magnificent bugle player they've ever had. They audition him. And, you know, they're kind of weird about it, but they they listen to him and all this other stuff and they're like, you know, all right, we want to give this guy the job, but there's something's bothering them. So they go up to him and they go, look, like, we really want to hire you, but we have to ask you know, why is a Jew gonna to agree to blow the bugle every day until Jesus comes back? And the Jew looks at them and goes, It's steady living. <laughs> kind of the same thing with World War Three. Us commentators who are out here being like, Hey, World War Three, World War Three, World War Three, it's steady living. It's what people want to hear. It's a nice the story that people understand and it's something that we're all afraid of going back to, but also I think a clarity that people like having. People People like being in a conflict like that and remember it fondly in, in a way. And then once they're in it, of course, it's horrible. But just look at all the movies that are made about World War II. You know, it's all about guy falls in love with a girl, fighting for his country. Everything's noble. Everything's great. Leads into the 50s, all these other things. Whereas if you compare that to basically any other U.S. war that happened after World War II, it's all terrible. So maybe Trump is, is sort of activating people's fears in a particular way, but I do think there is something to this sort of longing for a time when there was good and evil, and the U.S. was on the side of good, and you couldn't argue it, and I just don't think we're going to get there anytime soon.
3: Yeah, my own two cents on this, not agreeing or, well, not disagreeing any, with really what either of you two have said so far, but I I do think the... The simplicity of, of World War Two in some in some senses, because if you get into all the details of it, it's clearly not a simple conflict. But the good and evil aspect is is so easy to understand. And the, the problem with looking at world events through the lens of World War Two is that you can't really understand World War Two without understanding World War One. And then World War One is a lot more complicated to understand, right? And even people who consider th- themselves, you know, not historians, but like normal intelligent people who aren't historians or policy wonks to be well-informed about World War One know that some guy was killed in Serbia and there are some complex alliances, right? But then you have to get into how those complex alliances were formed. And, you know, the traditionalism versus nationalism, which spanned all throughout the 19th century. And Jacob, you were wondering if there are, any other wars throughout history where analysts like us were sitting around like, right, oh, there's going to be another 30 years war. Well, clearly the Napoleonic Wars were some of those, right? And that that influenced the entire way that the 19th century folded unfolded and arguably was fear of the Napoleonic Wars and re- revolutionary fervor was still one of the leftover causes that led to World War One. But it's hard. It's hard to understand that stuff and it takes time and it takes longer conversations like this one to try to Unpack some of that stuff, and I think as a result, you get people freaking out about World War III because the pieces of information that are known are sparse, unfortunately, and it's it's easy to be fearful. To Eric, to your point, when someone that you think is erratic is in is in office, and when I've mentioned basically everything I just said now to one of my friends, they said, "Well, I hope you're right." Like, there's still They're not convinced that this isn't going to be World War III. And the reason I find that problematic is because if we do ever get to a situation where we're staring down the barrel at a really major global conflict, I really want to have that fear to have a little power that it is gradually losing over time.
1: I also wonder, um, and and I'll pose this to both of you, but especially you, Eric, based on the realist discussion that we were having, which is that one of the Amazing things about World War II is the causes of it are so complex. and But once it's actually raging, or once you know, Germany has attacked France and Britain, and everybody's really going at it, it basically just it becomes the perfect proving ground for realism because all pretense that anything else goes out the window, and everybody really is just behaving as you would expect them to if their interests were the ones involved. And I think a lot of the people who laid the theoretical foundation for thinking about foreign policy in the United States after World War II, where people who lived through that conflict or people who were profoundly affected by that conflict. And I wonder if there isn't something in realism, something in that everything is interest-based that is perhaps overweighted when you're looking at it from a World War II perspective. Because one of the really amazing things about World War II is it's like when you're reading the histories of it, it's almost like a video game. It gets to the point where it's like, okay, well, uh, Germany needs coal from here. And they have to protect this rail line, so they're just going to do it. So what troops do they need to move and how are they going to do it? And what excuse are they going to, boom, go. And then the British are going to respond to that one. They're going to do exactly all the same thing because it was all, there was nothing else to do at that point.
4: What was the actual question?
1: Well, the question is whether you think that theories of realism are grounded or perhaps are too grounded in a World War II mentality, where in a conflict Mm. where everything was zero-sum, but it's actually very, very rare to get to a conflict in human history where things are zero-sum. I think World War II, sort of 1941 to 1945, one of the things that's amazing about it is zero-sum. So.
4: I was just getting excited about – I love Hearts of Iron, so I was just getting excited about your video game analogy. It's like, I know exactly <laughs> that. One of the things to keep in mind about realism is that the, at its core, all realism is saying is that uh, states – security interests are paramount and it will craft its foreign policy in relation to those security interests. And now hardcore, there's, there's this whole wide spectrum of realism. And you talk about the zero sum realism, the truly hardcore realism, where essentially anything I do to improve my security hurts your ability to improve your security and you get a security spiral. Right. So like I build, I build tanks to not get invaded. Well, it makes it easier to invade you. So now you're scared and you build tanks. Right. And that is a very frightening world to live in. I've always thought that there are a lot of like underlying assumptions in realism that, that some scholars have started to articulate more about identity. And ultimately uh, this is, this is my own kind of personal take on it. Like if everyone, you know, like what are, what are the units in, in realism? What are the actors? There are nation states, why are they nation states? Because nation states, generally, the people in them agree that they have a shared security interest and they think of themselves as one people and they think of other people as a different people. If that were different, it would be a different game. If everyone on earth, I mean, think of like The Expanse or think of Watchmen, right? I don't know if you guys are familiar with Watchmen, but the way that, you know, spoiler alert, the way that Ozymandias basically, and, you know, keeps the Cold War from going hot is he in the comics uses a fake alien in the movie uses uh, Dr. Manhattan to present an external threat, security threat to, that is so epic to all humanity that they have to unite. Right. And so, you know, if there was an external threat, would we, would we now be less concerned about, about our own security vis-a-vis each other? We'd be worried, you know, yes, we'd be worried about our security vis-a-vis somewhere else. Is there a way to get rid of this sense of other from people and, or at least like create groups larger than the nation state that have an in-group, you know, there's this idea of in-group out-group theory, which is a big part of realism. The the thing that keeps it from being zero-sum is ultimately, do you change how people think about who's their in-group and who's their out-group? And I think that is the necessary condition for it not ultimately being a zero-sum game. And has that kind of changed? Maybe. And, and that's, you know, that's where liberalism comes from. That's, that's why I think a lot of smart people are, again, liberalism, not the political philosophy, but the, the theory, the descriptive theory of foreign policy. So basically, can't we all get along, Uh, which, which is, is not a, you know, it's, it's, it is way smarter than that. Obviously that is a, but, but that's my, that's my take. So is, is national security interest something that is ultimately zero sum? depends uh, it it depends if then it depends if the nation state really can be effectively modeled as a single group that thinks of everyone else outside of it as not them as out. and uh, and that's the that's that's that is certainly worth noodling on. I don't have an answer.
3: well, guys, I had a lot of fun on this episode, Jacob, it was a blast, and we'd love to have you on some more. Uh, perhaps to talk a little bit more about some of your coming ventures as they come online. You're more than welcome to come on and have another conversation about whatever the world might be talking about then. But uh, guys, it was a blast. So uh, what's our outro? Right, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. We'll see you next time, guys.
4: (laughs) Peace. Thank you. Thanks, Jacob.